0: Hi everybody, it's Andy here, and uh, welcome to this week's episode. Now I've got a question for you. How many times do you finish a round of golf and actually think to yourself, I left so many shots out there, I made some silly mistakes, and if I didn't do those, it would have been so much better. I know that's me, and today we're gonna discuss what we believe is one of the biggest factors that golfers could change and work on that will produce fast results. One of the things that myself and Pierce always say is that if we we were to caddy for uh, a golfer, we could save them shots just by the decisions that they make around really managing their way around the golf course and today we interview one of the world's leaders in course strategy scott Force. scott's the creator of decade golf decade golf is basically a course management system that combines shot distribution patterns and pga tour scoring stats to really provide a simple way to map out where you should be aiming to ultimately lower your scores and in today's podcast we discuss the following how many times a pga tour pro actually attacks the pin most people think that they're attacking most of the pins they're totally wrong we also talk about the trends amongst average golfers and what has the biggest impact on scores how to approach your nemesis hole we all have these at golf courses how to approach par threes fours and fives differently when it comes to strategy and three key questions you can ask yourself that will help you produce lower scores this is a great podcast scott is A fascinating guy, he says what he thinks, he knows his stuff, and we believe this is one of the most important things that you can focus on to really improve your scores. So sit back, enjoy this one, and without further ado, please welcome to the show, Scott Fawcett.
1: So welcome to the show, Scott Fawcett. How the devil are you? You know, I'm pretty good. As I was saying just a second ago, I've been fighting kind of a nasty sinus infection and chest cough, but uh, we'll see if I can struggle through this. But overall, everything is going really well. Um, How about you guys? Everything good?
2: Yeah, really good, really good. We were just saying as well that you are our first guest that we've had on the podcast since we've moved to America. Now, I don't know what that means, it must mean that we, you were the first person we wanted to speak to, obviously. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we're really privileged just, to have
1: you on. I've got the least amount of stuff going on the week of the US <laughs> yeah. Open. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. No, but it was like, you know, we're really privileged to get you on because we obviously first saw you, um, I think we were trying to say 2016 maybe, just before the Open, James Ridyard put together a little event with you and Claude Harmon, and I thought it was just fascinating listening to you. And I think all of our listeners will be able to – Get a load of value out of this and how they can help their game and maybe think about things a little bit differently. And I think as golf improvement is concerned, I think a lot of golfers are very confused, definitely, but definitely go along the track of I need to look at my golf swing to get better at golf. Whereas actually a lot of the stuff that you talk about isn't just about that. Of course, it's about understanding what you do, what your patterns are but it is understanding about how to get yourself around the golf course better. And I'm just fascinated by this sort of how it all started for you, how it all started for Decade Golf. I think it'd be great for the listeners to hear that so they can really get a true picture of where you've come from.
1: Cool, cool, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a pretty big guy for being 48 in a, in, a, in a high school golfer way back in the day, 30-plus years ago. I mean, I'm 6'1 and 220, so most guys my size played other sports. So I, I really didn't specialize in golf until I got into college. I played at Texas A&M. Did okay, but really never took it too serious. Was busy getting, you know, more uh, degrees than anything. But naturally, even with an illustrious college career, I turned pro like everybody else and actually played fairly well for, you know, five or six years out playing professional golf. But then eventually you run out of money and and the heartache gets a little too big. So I quit playing. Uh, I met Chris Como playing in an in a illegal underground poker game in Dallas back in like 2003 or four. <laughs> and we became pretty good buddies. And I started working on my golf game with him. And I was kind of his first test dummy for all of the biomechanics stuff. And he was really the guy that first taught me like modern ball flight laws and everything like that. And just understanding like modern ball flight laws allows the human body amazing at what it does. And if you give it the right thing to do, it's a heck of a lot better at doing it. So Really, throughout those next three or four years, I just started applying like poker, I would say, mindset more than math to the game because I was a hothead. I mean, I hit the ball really far. I don't putt very well. um, And I just was a, a lunatic on the golf course. But when you play poker, you will quickly learn I'm going to give away all my money really quick. So I better stop that. And for whatever reason, it never dawned on me in golf to try to stop it. So I got to where I was playing pretty golf. I decided to play like professional amateur golf in 2008, which went well. And I actually decided to enter Q school as a 35-year-old amateur in 2008. I got through all four stages. So I'm the the oldest by 13 years to ever pull off that stupid feat. I'm sure that record, unless some 40-year-old decides to enter Q school, which actually I'm 49 now. And I think I'm going to enter Q school this year, again, as a joke, but um, got through all four stages, went back and played for a couple of years, but while I still had a full-time job, so that went about as well as you would expect it to. But then in 2011 was when they started releasing the new Strokes Gain Statistics. And I used to write a lot on an online poker forum called 2 Plus 2 in the golf section. And you can really start to see me talking about like the first thread that I ever wrote on like strategy and statistics was titled is Drive for Show, Putt for Dough really true? Because I could quickly see just from Strokes Gain putting numbers, I'm like, something's wrong here. There's, I mean, the numbers are just shocking. The idea that an eight foot putt is 50-50 it was just mind boggling at first. I mean, it's no better than a coin flip, but if you put me on an indoor eight foot straight putt, I'll never miss it. It's just shocking how much the elements come into play. And so this gets back to all the mindset stuff we always talk about. So that was in 2011. And then the end of 2013 was when they started releasing more of the stroke gain statistics and some excerpts from Mark Brody's book, every shot counts, which is like the, the Bible of golf statistics and all of a sudden I realized like, wow, if I know what how many strokes it takes to hole out from any given area on a golf course to the inch, well, if I then take all of Como and my, you know, TrackMan shot pattern data, and I kind of create a, a giant, you know, a, a spreadsheet where I've got all of the strokes to hole out, and then without getting too mathy, the standard deviations of the size of your shot patterns, both directionally and in distance control like I can solve course management, whereas historically it's just this mystical, elusive thing. And what's funny is like the arguments I get into on social media, where everybody tells me that so much of this is common sense. I'm like, okay, (laughs) then if you tell me that Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods were by far the best course managers ever, then how can it be common sense? that There shouldn't be anyone that's best at it. Two plus two is now common sense. No one should be better than anyone at it. And so... I really did do a lot of this work for my own game. But then in 2014, uh, I got a cortisone shot in my right arm the week before the Texas Amateur. And the guy paralyzed my right arm, which I used to have to explain who the junior golfer that I wound up caddying for that week was. His name's Will Zalatoris, who I think at this point we've all heard of. But the, at the time, he was just a struggling junior. He's 3,300 in the world. I went out and caddied for him. He won the Texas Sam by three. I caddied for him the following month at the U.S. Junior when he won. And then again, just so much of it's luck. uh, Bryson was attending, DeChambeau was attending SMU at the time and coach Enlow and I've known each other since high school. And he came up to me, he's like, Bryson's an idiot, man. He fires at every single flag. I can't get him to stop. I think what you're doing with Will is something course management related. Could you teach it to Bryson? And I was like, I think so. I mean, it's, you know, some math, but it's not that hard. And uh, you know, then he's the one that told me you've got to do it in an indoor setting because the NCAA rules. So I literally created the decade seminar, to give to DeChambeau. And then three months later, he won the NCAAs and then the U S amateur on top of that. And honestly, it's kind of comical looking back at it. Cause if you'd asked me in 2014, I would have told you, I'm a genius. It's all the math. Yay. Me math, math, math. In hindsight. Now it's all the psychology, but more importantly, it's the fact that that junior golfers, college golfers, young golf, professional golfers, your, your prefrontal cortex hasn't finished developing until you're 25 ish for guys. And so even if you could make good decisions, like you're just literally incapable of making coherent decisions until the last part, the prefrontal cortex, finishes developing. And so what decade does is basically circumvent the need to to think. I mean, honestly, that's that's what Stuart Sink said. He's like, I I love the Decade system because it, it I don't really have to make decisions anymore. The system makes the decision for us. And what's interesting though is this was designed for elite tournament golf, no doubt about it. But after, you know, two or three years of just selling an app out there randomly, and I realized how many people shoot in the eighties and just make the same mistakes we all do. And, and so then creating content more tailored to that weekend type golfer that's shooting in the eighties, that the best analogy that I've come up with it for is I've had COVID a couple of times. No, unfortunately I've had some long COVID stuff with blood pressure and everything. I'm still not a cardiologist, but I've done so much blood work and dietary work and everything. I'm like, I've gone from a 25 handicapped cardiologist to like a seven, mm-hmm. basically overnight by having five or six hours of conversations with cardiologists. What you're taking the the 85 shooting amateur golfer is like, well, I don't I can't put you on tour, but I can get you to see what's inside of a tour player's head. And they're at least good enough typically to like to, to start putting the pieces together. And then again, there's, there's, there's just the dumb stuff. Whenever you finish around and think you should have shot lower, it's just always these pedantic mistakes. And what we're really finding in advance is, well, let's just not make that mistake, but you've got to recognize it in real time ahead of the fact. So it's really all these different things that I don't really realize how hard the game was since I've never been an instructor. The main reason just to finish off that thought is, Golf is the only sport that's not played on a uniform field of competition. Number 18 at St. Andrews is only like 360. The green is 52 yards wide. The fairway is a hundred yards wide. Number 10 at Pebble Beach is 50 is 520 yards. The green is only 17 yards wide. And there's an ocean on the right. Like middle of the green is bad advice in both those situations. And, and that's really the problem is typically course management advice has been like middle the green or right at it. But there's usually some inflection point in between. And it's the non uniformity of course design that really is what makes Decade do what it does, I think.
2: Yeah. It's amazing how many people, I'm just going back to one of your points there. And this is great for people listening to this. How many golfers will come in off the course, go into the pro shop or go in the, club, in the clubhouse or speak on the car park? Oh, I just did this on that hole. If I hadn't have three putted that one, and if I hadn't have actually Hit that bad, you know, that bad chip shot there. Whereas the reality is that bad chip chip shot was just the wrong place to miss the green. That three put was because you were maybe in the middle of the green and the flag was miles away from it. So I think there's a load of things in there on that. So yeah, yeah I, very I, interesting.
0: It is. It's. It's. I think. I think just to add to your point there, I think most people would analyze their game and let's say they knocked it in the bunker from their approach shot on the second. They would automatically think, well, what did I do wrong from a technique side of things? There, they don't automatically go, oh, that was that was a bad decision in terms of aiming my shot or I aiming mean, not my dispersion. And it just brings me on to the question here, then, Scott. What are the trends that you're seeing amongst, let's say, the average golfer? Are there any consistencies that you go, well, look here, here are the areas in the game that they re- that, that they really need to work on that's going to have the biggest impact in their scores? What are, you, what are you seeing from the average golfer?
1: Well, it's, it's really funny to me because I've, I've known about this for a long time. So I've had a number of players and caddies and coaches come up and talk to me about these things that we call in the foundations, in, in our foundations, which is our introductory version. I don't want you wasting time entering stats. I want you watching content. But the stats that you do track are what we call the Tiger 5. And these are the five things that Tiger tracked in the late 90s, early and mid 2000s which were how many bogeys did he have on par fives, how many doubles, how many three putts, how many bogeys with nine iron or less, and how many blown easy saves. Those five things were what he was out there working on trying to avoid while he was playing golf. Not make more birdies, not hit it further, none of that stuff. And and what's funny, though, is when you ask the question, what do the amateurs do when you finish that round of golf and think you should have shot lower? And you're standing in the car park, like talking about all the dumb stuff you did. It's one of those five things. Mm-hmm. It, it really almost always never like, well, I should have hit that foreign on the green and then two putted like, well, no, it's I, I hit an average chip shot to 18 feet. I didn't want to make bogey. I jammed it five feet past and I missed it coming back. And I walked off with double when you probably should have walked off with bogey, maybe par every once in a while. It's certainly not double what we did for the foundations version is we turned tiger's bogey with nine iron or less into bogey from inside 150 150 yards and for women 130 yards and then the blown easy save which that's obviously subjective to tiger's opinion we turn that into two chips so if you miss a green on a chip shot and everyone's like what's a chip shot if you think you should have hit the green on a chip shot within 20 yards of the edge of the green that's what we consider a two chip and it's just mind-boggling when you go back, you know, objectively, that's the key word. I think the the main word of decade is objective. Like it is just, you have to be able to think clear and emotionless. And it's funny because that's one of the main arguments I get into with former tour players when they're, you know, announcers now. And they're like, well, I used to play a lot better with emotion. Like, no, you played worse without emotion. You can't play better than you are. You just didn't get into it until it was the heat and and, and, a, I doubt it. You're right. Anyways. But really, these players at home, it's, it's all about removing emotion from decision, having a concrete target, and then tiptoeing around trying to avoid those five things. Because some of the stats now that we've had the decade up, app and running for five or six years, as your scoring average improves from 79 to 76 and 76 to 73, so these three shot increments through the 70s. So we're talking good players, we're averaging in the 70s, 70 to 80% of their improvement is from bogey and higher avoidance, not from making more birdies. And it's like, okay, so Tiger's out there just trying to not make bogeys. Your re- score reduction comes from making fewer bogeys. <laughs> when you take the night, and, and again, I don't disagree with my, my, my haters when they say this stuff's obvious and common sense. It is once you hear it, but it's not until you do, but this is the most obvious statement. A 95 shooter to a 79 shooter, as they improve those 16 shots, 15 of the 16 are from bogey and higher avoidance. Only one is more birdies it's just mind boggling how simple it is typically to avoid again it's you know relative to your ability but avoid pedantic bogeys or pedantic doubles if you're a mid 90s like i'm in the trees and i'm an 82 average guy like guess what you're making bogey just don't make double from here and and oftentimes that's really just not that hard to do and that's where we see these players make i mean again i i i I hate feeling like a snake oil salesman here, but like (laughs) you see these people improve 30, 40% over the first two or three months in their handicap. It's just incredible how pulling your head out of your butt again, like it's just, Mm -hmm. but this is the key. It's really, really hard to do. And as I now, after having my elbows uh, paralyzed in that, in that awesome cortisone shot, I had both my elbows uh, operated on last year. So now I'm trying to knock the rust off of my own game to try to play the champions tour next year. And it's so hard. Like, all I do is sit around and talk about this stuff all day long. And then I go out and I play in my club championship last weekend. And I'm just like, wow, that was dumb. That was dumb. That (laughs) club selection was horrific. Like, it's just really, really hard to do. But the key is, once you also recognize how hard it is, you don't make the downstream mistake. You know, error compounding, you know, error begetting error, just compounding mistakes, the downward spiral, whatever uh, way you want to say it. And so, yeah, I may, you know, shoot 74 or five or something like that, but it wasn't 78 or nine yeah. because I didn't let that piss me off, you know, going downstream. And that's, if you think of somebody with a bell curve of scores, let's just freeze, call it 70 to 80 is their range of scores is a 75 average. I truly do believe that every time that player shoots 78, nine or 80, they quit and quits a harsh word, but they quit in some form or fashion. They punted strategy. They tried to force something to get it back. Uh, somehow you just ejected from decade and that's really where your worst 25 percentile of scores come from and people just think you've got to go out and force things to shoot lower and it's just it's not how it works yeah it's you match
0: it's matching this up with the psychology as well isn't it? it's fascinating and just thinking about this it's yeah, you know what often is common sense is not common practice and um <laughs> And I think with um, just with the with this approach as well, Scott, it's like for a lot of people, they might think it's it's a, a negative way to play golf. It's like, oh, I've, surely I've got to go out there to do my best score. Well, approaching it in a way that's going to be, well, how do I avoid making a double? How can I minimise the mistakes? Golfers, I don't think, certainly the, the average golfer out there, and including us in the past, yeah. we, we analysed when we – we often talk about when we used to play competitions, we go, what were we doing? <laughs> You know, we wouldn't
2: do that anymore. I mean, it's like, unbelievable. I don't I don't think do I never anymore? went for a flag. I don't think I never went for a
1: flag. Every single shot I'd have been going for the flag. But well, you weren't. I've, thinking. To, I've told this story. I've told the story a million times. My lowest round ever was 62 um in a in a professional event. The first round I shot 67 with a double and a triple. I was in the afternoon morning wave. Shot 67 with a double and triple. Went home that night, did not sleep a single second, just sat there pissed off in bed the entire day. Like How do you not shoot 59 on this course? I went out the next morning and and I'm telling my friends about how I made the double and triple at the Outback Steakhouse that night. I go out the next morning. I birdie one through seven lip out on eight and nine and birdie 10, 11 and 12. I'm standing on 13 T going, Holy shit. I'm actually going to do it. Like, I can't believe this. I haven't slept in 24 hours. And then I parred the last six holes and then I went to the outback steakhouse for dinner that night with my buddies. And I told them about all the dumb stuff I did on the last six holes. I blew it up and down on a par five. And they're like, you just shot 62. Like what is wrong with you? And I'm like, it's unbelievable. How, you know, you guys saying like looking back at yourselves, it's comical, how ridiculous it is. And then you look at a guy like Rory that's just super cool, super chill. And just a, you know, I'm sure he's out there playing with a lot of you know, piss and vinegar, or whatever emotion, But he's also just always present. He's not making emotional decisions. Tiger, sure, that guy got as mad as anyone, but he did not take it downfield. So he would erupt. But by the time he got to the next shot, he was totally back and present. And what I'll say about Tiger was at least he looked like he might beat you up. Whereas most of the times people look like they're going to start crying like pouting. I was a powder. Zalatoris, I love you like a sun buddy if you're listening, but you were kind of a powder too. And that's the main thing that was always on him, Shoulders back, eyes up. like it feels sounds silly, but a bunch of Tony Robbins type stuff to get you, you know, peak energy and up and stuff works, man. It, it, it is funny, but you have to, the key is you have to be able to recognize it in real time, like I'm kind of imploding. I always remember having the feeling like, oh, if I could go back 30 minutes, I'd do that differently. And that's just not how it works. You got to learn the lesson to not do it the same way the next time. and that's what I never figured out. And honestly, it really took poker. I don't know if I ever would have figured that out without poker and meditation, but.
2: I think, I think it's, it's interesting though, because I think the common sense is very much linked to expectations as well. And I think a lot of golfers, average golfers, amateur golfers, you know, no matter what handicap will have an expectation placed upon themselves, feeling that they should be better than they are. So even to the point, and this is a question I'd love to ask you. So let's say it's someone like Will Zalatoris or even Tiger, whoever the information you have on. How often in an 18-hole round is Will Zalatoris going for the flag? I
1: mean, and I know it depends, obviously, on the second. Two, of two the to four, two yeah. to four, right at it, probably. I mean, I that's the is going for every one. <laughs> well, that's but that's the funny thing. I, I think so. We all remember the interview. I've got this in a video in the app and on my YouTube channel. But we all remember the video from Curtis Strange and Tiger when Tiger first turned pro. And he's like, "Well, how's second place, second sucks." Mm-hmm. And Curtis is like, "Well, you'll learn." Well, what? That's the, the 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 highlight from that video but I've got another clip from that same interview where he's asking about like course management and tiger says, you know, I got a real lesson in it last year. I played with, um, uh, gosh dang it. Why can't I think of his name now? Nick price, uh, in the first round of the U S open. And he shot 66. And he said, we were having lunch afterwards and I asked him how many pins he fired at all day. And he said like maybe one or two. And he goes, and I thought that was weird because here I was firing at every single one of them went out the next day. He shot about the same thing. He said, I asked him afterwards, how many He's like one or two. And he's like, I I honestly think that was probably the most important 36 holes of Tiger's career because you can dominate amateur golf when you're just that much better than everyone. And the greens are a little softer and the pins are a little further from the edges, but you can't do that on the PGA tour. And I get college players, top five college players every single year that get out and they struggle through their first, you know, six exemptions. And they call me, dude, I'm playing, I'm not playing that bad. I'm like, did you notice the pins in college were five yards from the edge and now they're three. Like that two yards, you're still though, just firing it at the pin because now you're a pro that two yards. Now you're an extra two yards short-sighted, which is amazing how exponentially hard the chip shot starts getting. If you're, if you're three yards off to a pin that's four yards on, that's kind of just a chip shot, but just go to five yards. Once you get over this one-to-one ratio, you're five yards off to a pin that's four yards on the inflection point of when the chip starts getting harder is really quick. And so just these extra couple yards and you're just, two, three, four times around, just a little bit more short-sighted than you used to. And the real key is you don't actually have shorter birdie putts by firing. You will have, obviously, a slightly shorter birdie putt on average, but by playing with proper strategy, you'll have a slightly longer birdie putt on average, but you'll have more of them. You actually make the same amount of birdies. You just are making your up and downs much easier. And quite often, you're just going ahead and hitting the green where you would have missed the shot in a bad spot. And again, that's the kind of stuff that's just so hard to recognize in real time when you're, I've only got six starts and I've got to get a tour card and you're just out there and you've got to make it happen. You think, and it's like, that's just not the way it works. I mean, and honestly, watching guys like Morikawa and Wolf get into a playoff so quickly, that just makes it for the next generation even harder because they're like, well, I should win quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, they kind of got a little lucky. They're really good at golf, quite obviously, but that was pretty convenient and when you have seven or eight kids getting seven or eight sponsors invites, some of them are going to get in the hunt. Mm. I mean, it just kind of is what it is. It's just so hard to play this game correctly. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Oh, sorry, my bad. I've got, we've got a list of questions here with my name against this one as well. <laughs> so it's my turn. Um, right. Okay. So we hear a lot of golfers whenever we, they turn up on the lesson tee or they speak to us online, they talk about nemesis holes. So they've got this hole that they cannot play. There's a water hazard on there, and they're often in there or there's out of bounds on that hole. And they often obviously hit it out of bounds. And it obviously gets into the head then. And actually within, I think in most instances, it's not really a nemesis hole other than in their head. But how can how can the average golfer get over this? What's the what's the advice you might offer for that?
1: I think one of the keys of anything that I've really helped players with is just understanding. Like, I definitely was the first guy that went and bought a drone and float around golf courses to, to try to make video content. Definitely was the first guy that started looking at all these things from the satellite images and then laying shot patterns and everything over it. And what I'll say is typically, like, let's say there's a hole where it pinches in and driver is a little tight. Like with what I teach with Decade is how to figure out if, well, if we should be hitting driver or not, first of all which you may wanna be dropping back to three-foot or long iron or whatever, but let's pretend that you, you've chosen driver and for whatever reason, this water on the left does bug you. What I really try to show people is you've gotta to listen to the inner conversation going on in your head on the driving range. And then you've got to mimic that, that, that inner conversation, that self-talk as closely as you can out on the course. When people say, I can't get my range game to the course, it's 99% of the time because they start thinking, don't go left or don't go right or don't do this. And that's one of the main things I've got, again, a video in the decade app titled Don't. And it's so many other things like in your head, you can just like work around like, oh, why did I wear red shoes? Well, that's a stupid thing to think right here. You don't need to back off of it for that. Just come back to the moment. But if you hear any iteration of the word don't, like that's a hard reset. You've got to start over because you don't know exactly what you're trying to do with the shot. So typically when a player has a problem with the hole, they're thinking don't go one way or the other. And again, there's just zero chance you've ever thought don't do something on a range. 99% of the time when people have uh, you know anomaly shots or blow up holes, it comes from it's a hole where they're trying to work the driver the opposite direction of their stock shot. So I like fading my T- shots. Let's say there's a hole where you've got to draw it. I used to stand up there and try to draw it. and you know the problem with that is is 90 you know, I've mean, got say 90, let's be realistic. About 20 to 30% of the time when you miss it, when you're trying to work it the other way, so for me drawing it, 20 to 30% is a pretty good number that you're going to double cross it. And what's funny now is you've now started it right. So for me as a, as a fader, if I'm going to try to draw it, I've now started it further right than I'm comfortable doing, and my miss is a block cut. Those are always off the planet. So with the driver specifically, I talk about just working it one way only and then you've just got to get if you know a 3 wood or something else and mini drivers is what i'm touting more than anything right now get another club that you can work the other direction and or hopefully both ways i can work my mini driver both ways pretty well actually um, but you can do that because it has more loft and you can work it both ways with ball position whereas the driver with you can't really change ball position much so 90% of the time when you get a player that has a problem on a hole it is don't or they're trying to work it the opposite way that they're comfortable of and both of those, you've, you've just, there's ways around it. Again, like laugh at the idea of don't and then pick a different club. I mean, that's where you see guys at Augusta on like two and five, uh, 10, 13. The guys that like to fade it like a Zalatoris, so they get dropped back to three wood. And my dream next year is to have like 15 guys in the Masters hitting a mini driver because you can just take this thing with 13 degrees loft and hit it like 340. It's, it's, it's insane how far these guys can hit it. it um, it's pretty cool. You mentioned about the about the sort
0: of the, the self-talk and the the don'ts. And I think that's that sort of ties in nicely. And I think that, you know, what you've created that really takes out the thinking. Whenever we take a, a student on the course, um, our job, what we tend to do is just get we just ask a lot of questions. We want them to think. And this is the problem because they don't think for themselves often enough. Um what what would you say are three key questions that golfers could ask on the golf course? Because we know that the questions are going to direct the focus and get them thinking clearly, in terms of what they want as opposed to what they don't want. What could they what what three questions could they ask themselves that's really going to help them when it comes to strategy getting around the course?
1: That's a great question. Um, uh, that's definitely a tough one to think of on the fly. But what what comes to my mind, and I don't know if this is like an actual question in the way you're thinking of it, but I am super aggressive, like the math and me and everything is super aggressive off the tee. You should be hitting driver like everywhere that it makes sense. And the question then to ask if you're not going to hit driver is, okay, what's the alternative and what does it accomplish? And does it actually accomplish that? Because, and this will be what's going to be interesting as I start looking at St. Andrews here before long, because obviously there's bunkers everywhere. And so guys drop back from driver to three wood a lot. And I'm like, well, you're just bringing in a different bunker. Typically, if you're going to be in a bunker, being in a closer ones where you've got more loft to get it over the lip, is typically better. Um, we've all got this thing beat in our head from where tiger won with roasting two irons all around the British one time. I'm like, well, he was also a lot better than everyone at the time. So he could get away with that. So definitely the first one, if I'm considering not hitting driver is what's the alternative and what does it accomplish? Then we'll go to approach shot. I think that the, the historic, uh, you know, the the, the, the the standard way of thinking of course management is where's the spot to miss it. And I actually don't think that's correct. If you think of our shot patterns as being a shotgun blast, now that you're Americans, we can talk about shotguns. So <laughs> you've got a shotgun blast, but you only one of those hundred BBs is going to come out and you don't know which one it is. And so it's really, in my opinion, if you're thinking about where's the place to miss it, well, that's almost always towards the middle of the green or somewhere Like, it's it really doesn't make any sense. It really is a non-sequitur if you actually think about where's the place to miss it. Now, I used to think in my 20s that Tiger, like, mid-swing would be like, oh, it doesn't quite feel right, so I'm just going to miss it in the right spot. Well, if you could do that, wouldn't you just like, well, I'm just going to fix it then and hit it tight? Like, it's just not how it works. So rather than thinking where's the spot to miss it, I do believe the proper approach shot strategy question is how much do I not want to be short-sighted? So if there's a lake on the short side, I really don't want to be short-sighted. So I'm going to get more conservative way from there. If it's just rough and it's just average and the green isn't running away from me, then that's a spot where I can get more aggressive. If the, the surrounding areas are fairway cut and it's like piners where everything runs away, well, that's basically like a water hazard. So really the question is how much do I not want to be short-sighted? Then that's where we're going to start choosing our target towards the middle of the green. And then I would say in putting, just to finish off three sections of the game is, Is this a putt I realistically, I don't want to say think I can make, but need to make. On the PGA Tour from 15 feet, the strokes to hole out is 1.8 strokes. I mean, for almost any amateur, two putting from 15 feet, totally. You'll accidentally make some putts, literally as long as you don't three putt. You'll average under two strokes and we get all the way up to like elite college golf. We're talking plus two to plus four, maybe plus five type players, good golfers. Their inflection point where they average two putts to hole out is 24 or 25 feet. And I'd say this for impact, that's awful. Like that is just not a very long putt. It's not hard to two putt. And again, if you can just go out and two putt from 25 feet every time, you will accidentally make some, not many, but you will accidentally make some you'll average under two strokes. And then even when you look on the PGA tour, that two putt inflection point is is 32 feet. That's not very far either. And the real key to that is it comes all the way back to to expectation management. I always love tying this one in there. From, you know, from 30 feet, if you hit a putt to four feet, it's not a bad lag, but guess what? You're going to miss four footers. The four foot make rate on tour is 88%, but that's three feet, one inch to four feet. Like that's not a four footer that is averaging 88%. Yeah. And so when you, especially now we're talking tour players, you, this is what's comical again, when people like look at players missing short putts on tour, they're like, ah, oh, it's a choke. Like not really. We, if you hit 10 of them, you're going to miss a couple. Like it's not that big of a deal. And so really it's just all about that expectation. So if I'm not going to hit driver, does it actually accomplish anything? Again, driver to three would typically doesn't accomplish much. And driver back to two iron typically leaves you 60 or more yards longer on your second shot. It better accomplish a lot to give up 60 yards mm. into the greens. Again, I, I I wish I could just say middle of the green, but the fact that greens are all different sizes, that's not good enough. Um, and then just speed, speed, speed again. it's it just, it's such a, it's such a repeatable deal with these tour players, Keith Mitchell. I started working with him this year at the CJ cup. He's basically been negative strokes gain putting every year in his five years on tour. He was minus two, both of the first two events this year, which is horrific. And my advice to him was you don't leave anything short. I don't think your speed is bad because it's, it's a tight quadrant. Like when I can do the data, you just don't leave anything short. And if you've got a five foot distribution of speed and you don't leave any short, I'll have five footers coming back. But then more importantly, the bulk of my putts I've hit like two feet past the hole if all of a sudden you start leaving 25, even 30% of your putts short, I've traded out that five footer for a two footer short. Neither one of the putts had a chance to go in. And now I've made the hole really big for, if you, again, if you think of like a distribution curve, I've made the hole really big because I've centered the meat of it just past the hole. I do think Pels did as good as he could with the tools he had by saying 17 inches past, but that is not good advice for how to, where to leave putts at all. So you take a guy like, like Keith, and I'm like, I want you to leave 30% of your putt short um, from, from outside 15 feet. Yeah, I'm a I mean, literally, he's like, you, you've lost your mind. Well, the greatest thing about it is he had a 20 footer on the first hole. He hit 41 inches past. And he said he was walking off the green. He's like, I, I couldn't make it a single hole without jamming one in. He's like, I am literally just going to try to lag it as close as I can on every single putt for the rest of the tournament. Now it's pretty anecdotal and lucky that he putted his face out from there. He was 16 under through 27 holes with a five shot lead and wound up finishing third. But the guy, I think he finished ninth this last weekend too. I'm pretty sure he has 10 top 12s in his last, probably 14 or 15 starts since we started working together. And he had, I think it was 11 in his first 110 starts total.
2: Wow.
1: And he, again, his agent called me. He's like, this guy's a world beater, but he doesn't know how to score. And, like, again, this is where people tell me everything I teach is common sense. This guy's been on tour for five years and won, mm-hmm. And he basically was playing relatively clueless because the guy is a world beater. He's an amazing ball striker, but he's trying to force everything. And then he's trying to jam putts in because he wants to win again because he won his rookie year. Like, that's not how it works, man.
2: And, and the thing is, as well, even these top-level players, no matter whether it's a top-level player or a 28 handicap, they'll they'll see the, the guys and the girls playing on a Sunday afternoon who are leading the tournament, who they're getting the TV time because they're obviously playing well, and they'll see these puts going in. And it's like, well, the TV companies are only showing you what really goes in. They might show you a few of the ones that miss, of course, but they are showing you the, the player playing really well at that point. So I think it's just, again, there's a whole load of expectations around this and bad habits and and beliefs that are built out of just watching the best players win. Do you know what it's funny? But, but that's as that's well. the
1: whole oh, you carry on, Scott. I said, but that's the whole deal where people like when you ask, like, well, can this help a 28? Maybe a 28's probably getting on the high end. Realistically, about 20 is where I would tell people, okay, you can start watching content again. Cause you just I mean, people like, I don't have a clue where it's going. Well, I get that. So, but the putting, like, there's some advice that is just universal. Um, but in that 10 to 20 handicap range is the sweet spot. But what I try to tell people is like the 15 that can't believe that it's the same thing as a five. I'm like, it's just a sliding scale from a scratch to a 20. It's, it's just like when people say, does being five yards closer off the tee actually matter? Well, if I could put you a hundred yards closer, would it matter? Well, yes, it's just part of the sliding scale. So it seems crazy to think that five yards matters, but five yards hole after hole after hole, it adds up to, you know, a quarter to a half of a shot. And so, Yeah, if you just drop back from driver for no reason, now you're talking 20, 30 yards, there's no reason to. So it really is universal advice. And again, that's I would not have realized it when I first started teaching this. I was like, this is elite tournament golf. It is what it is. We had a light version, but it was just a placeholder in the app store just to be able to sell the full version. We released the foundations version on Valentine's Day right before the pandemic started. But it was because that summer before I was like, I can't believe how many people shoot 85 and enter their stats. Like that's insane to me, but they do. And it makes you realize how many golf nuts and nerds and honestly data people, I would not have realized how many data people there are in the world. And I don't even think I would have called myself one before, even though I've got a spreadsheet with more blood tests and weight and stuff from 20 years that you can possibly imagine. So I just didn't realize there's that many lunatics out there on the planet. And so that's when I started creating the foundations content. And the main thing we did different with it is when you join elite, you just get everything on day one. Cause I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, you're a better player. You're in the tournament season, whatever. You just need it all on day one foundations. We basically take the same content and just divide it by six and give you like an hour and a half a month for six months to force you to slow it down. And just take it in because it's a lot of information. I mean, your head will explode as I'm sure you can tell. I talk, uh, I talk fast. So hopefully it's a little bit more coherent than the videos, <laughs> well, but it's just a lot. It's a lot of content. I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. I love it when I get emails from people, Hey, I bought the app, but I've got a tournament tomorrow. Can you give me the bullet points? I'm like
2: pretty
1: bullet pointed 20 years of experience into four hours, man. That's all I got. I can't do it any more than that. <laughs> maybe go listen to this podcast yeah, exactly. exactly exactly so in, in terms of um
0: what, what would you say that you've learned on on par threes fours and five that you think's worth sharing with the uh with the golfers
1: you know I, I hate saying this because i don't want to put more pressure on par fives but par fives are we're going to do your scoring it just kind of is what it is. again people were complaining about the pga tour event just at craig ranch here recently and the scores were, you know, mid 20s under pars and they're like, that's just dumb. I'm like, well, it has four reachable par fives, but they're not driver five iron. I mean, they're driver, you know, three wood long iron. I mean, they're all reachable, but they're not gimmies. And then there's a 330 yard par four that's got a lake on the left. It's a tiny little crazy green, but you're going to get it up and around the green. Then got one that's 360. That's a pretty wide openish green. So six of the holes are just gone um, pretty well under par. And then after that, the downwind par fours were the other ones that played under par. The end of the wind par fours were the next ones that played over par. And then the par threes were the ones trailing after that. And it's par threes. Again, it's obvious, but pars are great scores on basically any par three. It's never a bad score. And again, obviously this is relative to your handicap or whatever, but there's just not any par threes that really play much under like 2.9 on tour. And so it just kind of is what it is. Par threes are, are hard. So Again, I hate saying middle of the green, but get this thing on the green to putt it. Yeah. Again, I, I do throw out a lot of names, not because I want to seem cool, but because I want people to realize this is what these young players are doing. Davis Riley is, uh, is a member at the same course that I am here in Dallas. And I've got a video in the app where I explain number 15 at Innisbrook, uh, at where the, it's a par three. It's 200 yards long. Davis and I were down there on the other end of the range hitting balls the week before Innisbrook this year. And we're talking, I'm like, dude, you're going to see 15 next week. The green's 28 yards wide. Like if I had you just on the range here hitting six iron, you wouldn't miss that width at all. And you would probably blanket it pretty solid from left to right. So if you just aim at the dead center of that green, you're probably going to blanket it. And hey, cross your fingers. It happens to be on the pin side. The key is if the pin's on the left, you can't aim at the middle and hope you pull it. You've got to actually try to hit it there and then trust your shot pattern will do that. But if you can just scatter balls all over that green, some will be close, some will be far, you'll make some birdies, you'll three-putt some. But I think if you just scatter balls all over that green, you could two-putt it on average overall, maybe a shade over. Scoring average on that hole historically was like 3.2. Now, instead of thinking I've got to get to 16 under to win, what you actually have to do is get 12 to 14 shots ahead of the field to win. So if you take a hole that the scoring average is 3.2 then you hit six iron on and two-putt it, you've picked up .2 shots against the field yeah. if we played that hole 72 times 72 times times 0.2 is over 15 shots well, all of a sudden wait a second parring that hole is literally the equivalent of winning every single start on the PJ tour i'm and again it's it sounds like a joke but i'm literally not kidding i'm trying to pull this up over here because it's been insane what davis has done since he goes out i mean because i could just see the light bulbs going off in his head like I'm not saying it's perfect math. If I put that on an MIT, they'd probably laugh in my face, but it's the idea that just hitting this green and two putting in great golf. Well, he goes out that week and he finishes second. And since then he's gone fourth, fifth, ninth, 13th, fourth, 13th. Prior to that, it was cut, cut 56th, seventh, cut 29th, cut 20th, 59th, cut 49th, 42nd cut. And then that's what he's done since like just get out of your own way man again i'm not taking credit for that well obviously exclusively taking i'm not taking credit for davis a really good golfer i really i do think davis will be number one in the world at some point he is so good it's ridiculous um but just stop trying to win again i i hate there's like the four things that i start off three things i start off my seminar with is winning requires luck stop trying to make birdies and stop trying to make putts and that is literally the foundational advice those three things plus the tiger five bogeys on par fives doubles. Three putts, bogeys with from inside 150 and two chips. Those eight things right there, that's all there is to golf, pretty much at any level, whether that's the PGA tour or the D flight of your club championship. I, I really do believe that.
0: There's also another layer to this as well, isn't the Scott, where you know, by giving Riley there the the um, the freedom to play, because if he thinks right, he's got to knock it close. If he thinks he's got he's got to hit that close on that par three, well a lot of things happen then from a mental standpoint. He thinks he needs to be super precise, so he's going to tense up. He he's, he's going to that's going to impact how he's going to produce the shot. Whereas if he thinks, well, I've got that twenty eight yard width there, I can hit it at the center. I can free up a little bit. If I miss it left, it's fine. If I miss it left, it's right. It changes the whole way that you think and approach that and frees you up to play. And something that we always talk about when whenever we watch the golf is that this is always interesting because you'll see someone have six iron and then knock it to like three feet. And then the commentator will say, wow, that was an aggressive play. And then me or Pierce will, will go, well, he's just missed his spot there. He's just missed his spot and missed it closer than he actually did. And this is part of the genius about having a strategy like this is your bad shot ends up closer than your, where you actually planned it to be.
1: <laughs> well, and that's where you've got to think of these. If, if you think of a Venn diagram, those overlapping circles where they're like two properties. So a dog and a cat and then overlapping, they share four legs, two eyes, two ears, um, fur, cat's mean, dog's nice. Like those would be the outside circles. Shot patterns are just like that. So if you think of a shot pattern as being one of the Venn diagram circles centered directly over the target and then a, a, over the hole rather, and then another circle centered over a, a decade target for of like a proper target. A lot of the circles, like literally 80% of the circles are mutual and it's just the outer edges. You're basically trading the one edge for the other edge. And quite often that's trading again, that more short sided edge for the long sided miss. I missed it and where's the spot to miss it? Or sometimes even putting. And that really is the hard part. Again, just trusting the variance inside that inner 80%. But this is the real kicker. And again, like I do feel like people when they leave my seminar, sometimes they're like, this game sucks. I'm quitting because it just seems so hard. But even that that six iron that they hit to three feet on TV. If there was any wind whatsoever, it's total luck where that ball went. I mean, not total luck, but basically luck that it went to three feet. That robot, the PXG robot five or six years ago when it hit the hole-in-one on number 16 at TPC Scottsdale on, on like the Wednesday, yeah, it hit a hole-in-one. It also missed the green left and right from subtle shifts in wind. Like it's just, the wind is impossible. Again, uh, unless you're doing the Pythagorean theorem out there on tour where you don't have lasers, it's not as the crow flies. The yardage book is to the front of the green and then straight up the middle. And if the pin's on the left and you're on the left, you're closer than the yardage book tells you are. If you're on the left and the pin's on the right, you're further than you think you are. There's so much luck involved into it. And the reason that matters is on, three feet on at three feet on tour, strokes to hold out is basically one. At eight feet, again, it's 50-50, so it's one and a half strokes to hold out. You lose the first 50% of your value, your first half a shot of value in five feet. On tour, it takes all the way out to 32 feet, to lose the next half shot. So from three to eight feet, you lose your first half shot of value. You then have to go from eight to 32 feet to lose the next half shot of value. So would I rather you be 15 feet than 20 feet? I, sure. But it's 0.08. Like I don't really care. You're going to two putt them both, whatever. Would I rather you be four feet than nine feet? Yes. That's the key. And that's just luck because When I take players out, and you guys probably do this too, you give them a good target. It takes less than nine holes every single time, and they'll flag one right at the target you gave them, five or six yards right of the pin, and they'll just turn and look at you. Like, I should have aimed that one at the pin. Like, well, first of all, you didn't know that shot was coming. But second of all, how far exactly were you trying to hit that shot? And let's say the pin was 167. They'll say, you know, 167. Cool. Let's get up there and see if that ball was actually 167. And when you get up there, it'll be 162. So it's 15 feet. And if you actually do the trigonometry, you're 15 feet away from your target and maybe you're 20 feet away from the hole. Like it's actually not that big of a deal, which is so hard to wrap your head around. It just, because you've got to get the X and Y coordinates right for it to actually matter. And it's got to get inside of eight feet for it to really matter at all. And that's the thing that's just, again, it's just variance. That's why. I mean, again, I saw that the Saudis are going to pay somebody $54 million if they shoot 54. And I love Pia and Lynn to death. I think everything they teach is great. I only, as I've said, this is a joke. I hope they've ever heard me say it. They know I'm kidding. I just hate the name of their company because vision 54 to me sets you up for such absurd expectations, which is funny. Cause it's like the opposite of everything they teach. They're all into you know personal development, everything like managing expectations, but the no one is ever going to shoot 54. I will, I'll pay the 54 million. If somebody does if It's on a real golf course, <laughs> you heard it's, it's just not going to happen.
2: Uh, yeah. Of course it can afford it as well. We're going to
1: have to get some sales out of this podcast.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, this has been fascinating. It is. It's great. And I think we could talk about it all day, but I want to go through some quick fire questions as well, because I think it's just, uh, yeah, just, just, again, it's great listening to you talk. So first question, best piece of advice. I would say,
1: say say that again, sorry. Learn to meditate. Okay, love it. And and understanding meditation is not just sitting there and following your breath and then getting up and slamming a pot of coffee and running out the door. Meditating, learning. I'm a big fan of Sam Harris's waking up app. I've had some crazy stuff going on in my life and the the mindfulness and Tony Robbins is as cheesy as he is. I love the guy to death. Combination of Tony Robbins for peak energy, Sam Harris for meditation. But then the real key to all of that is when you finish a 10 minute meditation session, you're supposed to just get up from the couch and just go about your day in that same mindset. It doesn't, you don't leave it there. There's a saying, you've got to take the yoga off the mat. I'd say the same things, you got to take the yoga or the meditation off the cushion. So number one piece of advice, because it's going to help you in life, golf, kids, work, marriage, podcast, everything. Definitely meditation. Love it,
2: love it. Worst piece of advice that you hear? That you hear, that you hear. Never up, never in. I mean, (laughs) you don't like that, do you?
1: (laughs) It's it's actually funny. It's
0: going to be crazy, man. We filmed today. We filmed a bit of content for um, some new products that we've got coming out. And one of the things that we were doing was from 20 foot and out. And we're like, we were saying, look, even if it's short, it's absolutely fine. Look, we want you to two put these because the chances of you hauling out are really slim. (laughs) It's like two putting from this distance is great, even if it's short. So it's a good put, even if it's short of the hole. So.
1: Yeah. Well, it's just insane. I mean, again, like Brad Faxon was on a podcast a couple of years ago. I was trying to see if I could find his actual stats over here. Faxon was on a podcast a couple of years ago and I don't listen or care or anything. Um, But he was on and he said, when I was putting my best, I always had to mark the comeback putt. And I couldn't care less if Brad thinks that or not. Again, Brad, I actually think he's a nice guy. He he and I don't uh, see eye to eye very well anymore, but somebody just tags me for comment with this excerpt from the Podcast, I was like, I doubt that's accurate. It sounded funny in my head because it kind of came off sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> and so Brad and I get in this pissing match, and he's like, "You don't think I knew what I did when I putted my best?" I'm like, "If you think you had to mark the comebacker, then no, there's no chance you did that. I've looked at enough data; no chance that's accurate. I did. Okay, so I go get the data. It's shot link. It's measured to the inch from 16 to 20 feet. We considered." Mark, the comeback, we tried to be generous at two and a half feet. So 30 inches and less from 16 to 20 feet. Brad left 16% of his putts short. He only hit 20% more than 31 inches long. So he left almost as many short of the hole as he hit more than two and a half feet past the hole 20 to 32 feet, 23% short, 25%, 31 inches long, 32 feet and longer, 43% short, only 23% more than 31 inches past the hole. That's just not what you did. And my problem is I don't want a college kid or a mini tour player or Joe at home. Like you can't leave a 15 footer short. So Brad then says, well, those weren't my best putting years. I'm like, well, we only picked four of the 10 years you were on tour during shot link. We picked those four because you were in the top 10 in putting in each of those four years. And that's the data from it. And he just says, Well, those weren't my best putting years. I'm like, okay, I'll take the number one strokes gain putter from every season on the PGA Tour. And that's the only reason I knew this answer before, Brad, because it's identical. You cannot putt good unless you leave 20, 25, 30% of your putts from 20 feet short. It is literally impossible. Nobody has that good a speed control. So that's we, it, man. Back to,
0: again, looking at it objectively again, isn't it? That's the key. That you said at the start, you know, objectively rather than just emotionally and subjectively because it's yeah, very different it's to like, what we think we do.
1: Yeah, it's just like that's not true. And, again, I, I don't think he's being malicious, but it's just bravado. Like, it's cooler to be like, I jammed him in. Like, no, you didn't. Mm-hmm. And and you're not helping players by saying that, unfortunately. So, apparently, I have to be the Twitter police. Yeah, <laughs> I, I
0: always remember we went to a seminar years ago with Paul Horian, uh, the putting coach, and he was like, um, he was talking about Ben Crenshaw saying, you need to accelerate on your putting stroke. You must accelerate. And apparently when they measured Ben Crenshaw, he decelerated on his puts. So again, it was the, the one thing that he was telling everybody else to do, but actually he didn't do it himself. So it was just interesting, <laughs> really similar sort of thing.
1: And there's hundreds of those. I mean, again, it is just crazy. Uh, there's just, there's literally hundreds of little tidbits like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty insane. Yeah, and you've got to be careful what you listen to. That's the that's the that's the thing.
0: Yeah,
2: love it. Uh, right, we're doing well on the quick fire. Third question: <laughs> What would you change about golf, if anything?
1: I would get people to stop worrying about distance. The PGA Tour is a circus. It's only going to get worse. We don't seem to have. And again, I really don't pay attention to it, but I don't think that distance is a problem for the vast 95% of golfers. We don't need to roll the ball back. We don't need to bifurcate the golf ball. There's so many hidden problems with that. You want to talk about explode the PGA tour, bifurcate the golf ball and then have the Saudis give everybody a couple million dollars to just come play the ball. Like it, it, it's not good. And the problem is that same week that I was out in Phoenix arguing with Brad, I was out there watching, you know, I'm out there working with some players. And I'm standing there watching Kevin Chapel hit balls on the range. He's got a flat bill on. He's got some like mid-calf socks on and shorts. I would look like an idiot in it, but he looked really cool. Fit, 30-year-old, whatever dude. He looked cool. And I look back behind the ropes, and there's 15 kids dressed exactly like him. They can see themselves right there. When I was a kid, I'm looking at Steve Elkington and his Bobby Jones silky shirts. And like, I can't relate to that. That's, I, I can't relate to that. These kids could literally see themselves out there. And the younger we make the PGA Tour, the better the health of the game is going to be because it's going to keep bringing in more younger and younger players. The cooler we make it, the I hate saying it, but like caddyshack 2 of the game, the more direction that goes because golf is, it's done if it's going to stay crusty and old. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying we actually have to caddyshack it with uh, hockey goals and stuff out there on the course, but it's going to drift, it's going to drift more towards top golf than the other direction and we've got to embrace that in my opinion because what's wrong with that and again so again that's a weird place to get to from bifurcating the golf ball but if you bifurcate the golf ball the players that have done so great in those first four months after college that stops immediately yeah and so the wolf the morikawa those guys that win and get out on tour that's how you get the tour really young period Mm. and so the the, to, to, to handcuff those guys well then people say well, shouldn't they just play the pro ball in college? Well, nobody's good enough to give up 10% in distance. Like, so now the guy that should be number one is number 60. The guy that should be number 60 is number one because he's playing a juice ball. He gets a starts and all of a sudden he can't compete because you're not going to play the college ball in the NCAAs on Sunday and tee it up at the Memorial on Thursday and have a chance. Mm-hmm. People, It's like people think I'm saying they're going to shoot 80. Like, I understand they're going to still be really good at golf, it is going to take a couple months to learn the subtle variances in the golf ball. And people be like, well, can't they practice with both? Like, well, they're in school too. Like, no, there's no reason to bifurcate. Stop chopping down trees on the old golf courses. Cause that's what's screwing them up. Like people say, well, how do we handcuff distance on the old courses? Don't chop the trees down. That's the only way all the historians are the ones that love chopping them down. I'm like, you're the one screwing it up. It's a
2: good point. It's a good point. Okay, what about the best thing about golf?
1: You know, it's funny. So I just joined Merido Country Club here in Dallas, which is uh, it's a spot where it's been a, a course that everybody's it's it's been a couple of different places. A really rich golf lover here in Dallas bought it and was like, I'm gonna turn this into golf mecca. I'm gonna try to get tour players out there, and there's probably 15 or 20 tour guys out there, Davis and Zalator, it's like just tons and tons of guys out there. And the first weekend I joined, I wasn't sure it's not the cheapest thing ever. And, you know, but I had another one I was looking at and I finally like pulled the trigger on it. And the first weekend I was out there hitting balls, I'm down there with Davis and Braden Thornberry and we're doing like some wedge contest. They've got pro V range balls and they've got their track man set up. And so the answer to the question is just the camaraderie. Like that was the first time I've always worked out of the house, even with my electricity company, I've worked out of the house for 20 years the pandemic has obviously just driven us all indoors and that was literally probably the first time in, I mean, two or three years that I had just because I, I quit my old golf course five years ago. And so I've just kind of been a shut in for like five years. Um, And it was the first time I've just been out there with some dudes and just having fun. I just literally, that's where I just came from. Same place. I got a buddy in town, Ryan Dreyer and Marco Gortana in town. We were out there doing chipping contests for like an hour, like just getting out there with your buddies and just competing and having fun. and. It's uh, it, it, it's just an amazing game. I mean, I saw Lee Trevino out there this weekend hitting balls at 82. The dude carries his clubs himself from the from the parking lot. He's got like six three woods and ten wedges and a medicus and a full golf bag. Grabs a big bucket, goes to the end and hits balls, and he's 82. I'm like, that's incredible. I mean, the game is unbelievable. We've got to make sure it's got longevity because it. I, I do think we're screwing it up, and I do think that challenge is going to be the top golfs and the the virtual golf and vr when it comes in and it's going to be hard to get out there for four hours when everybody's like dude i got a pretty cool simulator here in my house i can just play some pebble beach right here and yeah it's not the same but if you're not an elite golfer it's pretty damn close
2: yeah no it's it's interesting times
1: what do you guys think is the best thing with the game I think what you just said, I really do. I think I think
2: playing golf with your friends, I don't think there's anything better. A got whether it's a lad's holiday or just a game of golf at a night really nice golf course. So playing at your club is fantastic, but then but knowing that you've got a day in the diary when you're gonna play St Andrews or you're gonna play Hillside or West Lanks, you know courses that we've done recently and you go that that that's really something worth looking forward to i would say that you no
0: know, yeah i think it's uh, i think it depends it's funny isn't it when you play golf for a long time and you've had you've had different experiences within the golf industry turning pro and playing professionally and now play you know when you when, when you're there trying to compete and score where now it's like we play for fun and it's like if you have a you can have a really Crappy down the golf course and still enjoy it. And, you know, your expectations have sort of leveled out to where they, they're right. It's like you're going to have some good, you're going to have some bad, but ultimately it's, uh, it's just about enjoying it and enjoying the experience where you are. So, definitely.
1: Well, I think the way you said that, honestly, like that's it's the hard thing for me right now. Like, a, you know, a couple of years ago, we didn't have that many members and I would get emails in, you know, constantly, wow, you've really helped me see this differently. And I try to be frank, man, I was a lunatic back playing the game. Like, I literally was. If you think of whoever the worst you've ever played with Mm -hmm. attitude wise, probably multiply it by 10. And that was maybe getting close to me. Like Mm -hmm. it's comical looking back at that's how I tried to play professional golf and was moderately okay at it. Um, But I get emails from people all the time just like, dude, I am enjoying the game so much more just by having proper expectations, understanding some basic realities, understanding how to get out of some trouble situations. Like I'm just enjoying the game more. And, and now, like I say, a couple of years ago, I used to get them sporadically. And now with, you know, a few thousand members, I get five or six a day. And these people write a paragraph, two paragraphs. And I've, I love hearing it. So mm-hmm. I've, I've, I reply to them all, but it is like, it's, it's, a, it's a great problem to have. It's getting overwhelming, but it is so rewarding to be helping thousands of people enjoy the game more. And then I love it because they just go tell the bullet points to their buddies and then the buddies, you know, you know, I don't need everybody's hundred dollars. I'll be all right. I'll take it if you want to. But um, <laughs> it is just cool to really be helping thousands of people, just like you guys with the podcast. I mean, I'm, you just you really can. It's amazing how many different people you can touch. As, as awful as social media is, when used correctly, it's pretty incredible if you can stay out of the weeds and comments.
2: It's a, powerful, it's a powerful platform in both directions, unfortunately, isn't it? Yeah, as you say. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> We, we love this question. We love throwing this one out here because it's sometimes it really gets people thinking, but this is the last one for you. So three golfing truths, three things that you believe to be true about golf.
1: Oh man. Hitting it far is fun. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand why people are against it. Hitting it far, as far as you can, whatever that is, is just fun. Um, Riding in carts is fun. That's my American thing. I'm trying to think what do people disagree with around the world? Like, honestly, like, I think it's hilarious. How many people give us Americans hard times. Like I go to the gym and work out. I don't want to do it on the golf course. I'm sure maybe as I get a little older, I'll switch into it right now. I just love riding a golf cart. So hitting it far is fun. Riding a golf cart is fun. And, uh, sandbagging either direction is abysmal. Shoot your score. Hold out anything outside of three feet. If you're a one, you're a one. Don't try to be a plus one. If you're a six, don't try to be a one, like just create a legitimate handicap so we can all have fun in handicap golf tournaments. The handicap system should work well if we all weren't such pieces of shit. I love it. <laughs> I love it.
2: I love it. I, love it. I, I
1: love it. myself cough after laughing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's my spike it in the end zone to end a, end a podcast. Like (laughs) this guy had it going until he called us all a piece of shit. (laughs) Uh, Scott, thank you so much. It's
0: been uh, really good good. to chat to you. You can, you can hear the passion in your, in your voice. It's great to get people on like yourself who love the game and who are genuinely, you know, there to help people. So you can feel that. And I
1: know the listeners are going to
0: feel that as well. So where can they go and find out more about you and decade golf?
1: Luckily, at this point, if you just Google Decade Golf, you're going to find it. We've also just set up the domain decade.golf. Um, we've got a deal where if you go in your app store on your phone and just download the green Decade app, uh, the f- month one is free. And I intentionally front loaded it with a bunch of great content on shot patterns and the realities of scoring. Um, when we first did it, I told my programmer that I wanted it to be a no credit card required thing. I got a text from somebody, well, it's asked me to input my credit card. I'm like, no, no, no. I, I literally want everyone just take it for free. Here's month one. And again, you'll get to track some stats on the tiger five. You'll, you'll get a really good feel for a lot of it. Um, Again, no credit card required. We'll probably send you a follow-up email or two to say, Hey, you want to dig deeper? If you don't, again, whatever, it's up to you. Um, And so really just decade golf at this point. I mean, again, it's, it's pretty fun. Like last week on Saturday, I had, had seven, seven players tied for second or better on the PGA tour, you know, midway through the round on a Saturday. It's just crazy how even at the highest level, just nobody knows how to play this game. And again, like really play this game. You guys obviously have played it at a high level. And I do think that the main thing that's just comical is like the idea of a pin. If we've got a seven iron and a pin is four yards from the left edge and you aim six yards right of it. And then you hope you pull it. Like there's just things like that that are so obviously stupid. And I just, I have to tell tour players this every single day. And they're like, oh my God, I do that six times around. <laughs> that's where the outlier shots come from. Back back to that par three, and then I will shut up, I promise. That par three that's 28 yards wide, the, the punchline of the joke is the shot pattern in that tour event, again, PGA tour event is 50 yards wide and 50 yards deep from 200 yards. And that is entirely... I intentionally chose this one on the left. Most, I mean, a lot of tour players do like to fade it. I don't care what the TrackMan studies say. It's a third of that. That's not correct. There's a lot more that fade it than anything, but that's guys trying to hit a flighty draw to a front left pin. They're trying to make birdie on a hole again with a scoring average of 3.2. There were 10 birdies this all day, this one year out of 154. So the left shots are smothers of guys that like to fade it. And then the far right shots are guys that double crossed it because they bailed out. And that's where the shot pattern goes. If I told, if I just put a flag out there, blue flag, 200 yards in the fairway, and told everybody, I don't care what shot you hit at it, just hit it at that pin. I don't care if it fades, draws, whatever. They would perfectly blanket that flag. And guess what? Half would be left and half would be right. It would be really convenient if you're the guy that just happened to hit it on the left side that day, but you weren't thinking, I hope I pull it. You just happened to pull it. And I really do think that I don't disagree with people. Like a lot of the stuff I say, like, well, you know, uh, uh, butch used to say that, or whoever you say, that. I totally agree with that. If there's one thing I do think that I've brought to the forefront is this idea that we don't actually try to hit it at our targets. Cause I've never heard anybody else talk about that before. And I've literally just everyone on tour, when I talk about this, they're like, Oh my God, I'd literally do that constantly. So, yeah. That's a, it's a
0: definitely a good, <laughs> it's definitely a good point to finish on.
2: Yeah,
1: definitely. I and mean, look,
2: it's been yeah. well worth the wait as well. Thank you. I know we spoke about this a while ago and uh, you know, really glad that we've got you in here. I'm sure we can do it again at some point in the future. And I'd love now to. we're yeah, here. Anytime. Yeah. We feel like it's, it's not, you know, we're neighbors now. It might be That's right. hours on the flight still. I don't know. We're maybe less it's than about that. three. It's about three. three there we uh, go. Honestly, we're I'll be
1: out. Better. I'll be out to LA sometime probably this year. I'd love to get out there, shoot some content with you guys or whatever you want to do for sure
2: we can figure something out for sure. Fantastic. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you guys.